Mr. Blue is just not there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that might have been actually it, because he like has one line, and then it's just like... Yeah, he has one line, and, okay, and, then, Mr. and then the, every, the whole rest of the film was like, Mr. Blue is yeah. missing! And I remember thinking, who's Mr. Blue? And then they had the flashback at the end when they're all being given the names and stuff. Mm. And I'm like, that's the old guy! Yeah. That's Mr. Blue! <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about him! So, oh yeah, shit, he is in this movie. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to The Good, The Bad and The Better Than Average. I'm Alice. I'm Brian. And today's episode we're talking about directors and like our favourite directors, which is a very long list, so we're only going to talk about a few in this episode. Yeah. Um, we'll probably come back to we'll, it again. we'll definitely come back to this so th- th- there are plenty more that we can um, rant and rave about oh always, always. so um, I'm just going to get in straight into it really um, obviously a big director that a lot of people know and either love or hate is Quentin Tarantino love Tarantino you love Tarantino I like him like some films I really enjoy mm. some I, I guess I guess his fans completely get in and sometimes I'm a bit at loss when I watch it. Yeah. So, um, a question for you, Brian. What like what is it about Tarantino films that really inspires you? So, um, I think he's generally one of the best storytellers in cinema today. Because like, he makes a film without it needing to be very like crazy artsy, but it'll also have the crazy artsy side of it. But he mostly concentrates on the substance and the story itself and rather like work on the characters. Like, um he did an exercise where he uh, took um, the characters in Reservoir Dogs and tried to see what was like the important themes rushing between them. And he was like, "Oh, I started discovering loads of this, like father-son relationships with everyone. Like, uh, is it Mister Orange, the guy down on the floor? Yeah, I think it's yeah. Mister Orange. Mister Orange and Mister White's relationship, and then Mister White and Joe's relationship, and then Joe and his actual son's relationship. Yeah. It's all like reflected in that. But then he was like, but I scrapped all that." Because he doesn't want it to rely on, on that. He's like he said, he, now that he knows it's there, he doesn't have to worry about putting that sort of subtext within the actual yeah. film. He's like, I'd rather work on the content. And I think that always is reflected really well with Tarantino. Is it kind of like when directors say, "I want you to amp up a scene so much, like really go for it, and then we'll turn it down after"? Is it kind of that sort of thing? So he at, kind of had the idea of like amping up that kind of father son relationship, and then he's like, "Well, now no, I know that's yeah. there." we can, like, calm it down and then focus on other yeah, aspects. Yeah, I, I think it was also more him, like, realising that it's there, but him also being like, now that I know I can write like this, I don't have to worry about putting it there. Like, because yeah. whenever he'll write something, then there will always be some sort of some sort of theme underneath the characters and the character relationships. And I really like that just because then it doesn't just become oh, I need to make it artsy, I need to make it, like, grand and big and have loads of symbolism. He's like, I'd rather just, like, work on the actual story. And he makes mm. a film a film rather than making it something to present or show by or be like, look at the genius. Yeah, because he's... Yeah, I, I, I kind of see that, actually, with his movies. Like, it's got, like, a showboat element to it, but that comes naturally rather than it intentionally being that way. He's got a style, but... The way that style came about wasn't him being like, I'm going to write, but it had to be really stylized. It yeah. just happened. Yeah. And now when people watch a film, they're like, oh, that's a definitely a Tarantino film without even having to look it up. Yeah, Or exactly. seeing the credits or anything. I think that's also a reason why directors like him and Scorsese have like really stood the test of time because 
their work is so stylized now to the point that you can literally go into a film and be like, that's a Tarantino film. Yeah. Because you can see like the parallels. And I think as well, he's done so much for pop culture and inspiration to movies. Yeah. Like, I definitely think watching watching certain things now that a lot of people will take his ideas or like take certain things that he did. Like um, I've always liked him as well because he's such a rule breaker. Like he doesn't just like... Like, he'll have narration for, like, pretty much the entirety of the film, which is technically a big mm-hmm. note, but it always works because it's always referenced for the dialogue. It's always, like, referencing the story, and it's always has substance rather than it just be, like, a way of explaining things. Yeah. Like, he actually, like... A lot of the dialogue always constantly, like, reflects the plot, even when it's, like, small analogies to either show what the character is actually like or whether it's something deeper related to your whole story like, yeah they'll use an analogy just to like kind of break it down and i just i just love him as a writer i think he does such a good job of creating really cool characters but kind of believable as well yeah like, you can get where where everyone's coming from you can understand like their stories to everything i agree with you actually when i was watching reservoir dogs actually i felt that i did kind of even though they're all kind of like terrible people, mm. I did kind of get their point of view. The only person I didn't, and I think this was done on purpose, was Mr. Blonde. Yeah. Because he's meant to, you're not really meant to understand him because he's meant to be a bit terrifying mm-hmm. because he's so brutal. And. Yeah. Uh, like, he scares me so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you there. But um, I was actually going to say that, like, um, he does a really good job of not just making bad guys bad guys. Like, he makes you question the morality. Like, even with Mr. Blonde, mm. like, even though he tortures that guy, you also find out that he spent four years in prison keeping yeah. the Joe family safe. Yeah, like, he, he kept his mouth shut and mm. and spent years of his life in prison to keep someone safe. Yeah. It shows that side. Yeah, definitely. And um, even with uh, Mr. Orange, who is actually the rat at the end, mm. it's that whole idea that even though he's the good guy, he's actually put them all in this bad situation. So it already kind of flips the expectations yeah. of, of what a, g- a good guy and a villain actually is. Like I've, and I always find that in a lot of his um, work. Because a lot of it is tailored around bad guys and gangsters yeah. and a lot of action. But a lot of it tries to kind of justify their means. Like yeah. Not just go, oh, this guy's a bad guy, so he's going to get shot. I, the way I like to think about it is that if this happened in real life, this situation in Reservoir Dogs happened in real life, if you read the newspaper, it will just talk about the police side and like how it's a good thing they got taken down, all that side of it. And really, it is a good thing that happened because they were breaking the law mm. and being a danger. But then the film shows their side and then you end up feeling sorry for these characters and you end up thinking... And you can see the struggle with it, and especially with Mr. White. Like He didn't like the fact that innocent people died mm. in that process. And when... Um, they were in the car and uh, is it Mr. Brown? Is that Tarantino? Yeah. When he like died in the car and it, it was all kind of going wrong, you can see that he didn't want it to end that way. It was meant to just be a kind of like a quick bang job and go. Yeah. And and I think that's kind of reflected in their names a little bit as well. Like Mr. White, he's out of all of them, he's the one that the pure one. The pure one. Exactly. Even though he's definitely done shit, he's definitely the one that shows a bit more conflict in mm. his about his decisions. Which I think is really cool, and I love um, Harvey. Oh yeah, he's great. Harvey he's got Keitel. the great voice. Incredible. <laughs> and he's, 
A funny thing about that as well, um, apparently when Tarantino was actually making the film, he didn't have the money to cast anything. He was mm. like, I'm really broke, like, I don't have any money to do it. Yeah. And Harvey Keitel was like, come down to New York, I'll put the whole thing, basically. Oh. And literally like, helped him cast the whole movie with his budget, because he'd um, come off a big Scorsese film at yeah. the time, I'm pretty sure. So basically he was just like, yeah, I'll help you out, which I always love him. He's awesome, he's such a cool actor. But, um, also, like... I think Reservoir Dogs is probably the most, like, perfect example of a Tarantino film. Because it's one, it's not as long as his other films, so you don't need... Because he usually puts in 40 minutes of side story right at the beginning, which isn't even the plot. Like, mm. if you watch Inglorious Bastards, there's so much setup before it gets to the actual plot, which is killing Hitler in the movie theatre. But he breaks that convention again, and he's just like, well, I'm going to establish the world. And I think... It's weird how much he breaks, like how many rules he breaks, but it consists into such a good movie. It reminds me of stuff like Scorsese and stuff yeah. like that. I just think with writing as well, the first scene is such a perfect establishing scene for everyone because you see how Mr. Blonde's a killer because he's like, yo, Joel, do you want me to pub this guy? Yeah. You have um, the meticulous side of Mr. Pink where he's yeah. talking about not wanting to pay the, pay the waitress a tip. Yeah. You have uh, Mr. Orange who actually does rat out uh, the Mr. fact Pink. that Mr. Pink doesn't want to tip. Yeah. Exactly. So it all kind of. Oh, I didn't even think of that. No, it gives yeah. you all like the little things of Mr. how Mr. White the was like the, the piece. Yeah, and he does actually be more like the dad character because yeah. he is kind of like. He's trying to calm people down yeah. and trying to be like, nah, it's stupid, don't want And Mr. Blue is just not there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that might have been actually it because he like has one line and then it's just like. Yeah, he has one line. And okay, then, and so then, and then the, every, the whole rest of the film was like, Mr. Blue is yeah. missing. And I remember thinking, who's Mr. Blue? And then they had the flashback at the end when they're all being given the names and stuff. Mm. And I'm like, that's the old guy. That's Mr. Blue. <laughs> <laughs> forgot about him. So, oh, yeah, shit, he is in this movie. <laughs> um, I thought maybe he's a myth. Maybe he's not really there. <laughs> but that's what I like with, because um, they do it with Tarantino's character as well. But they, um, I think that's what the Like a Virgin spiel is all about. Mm. It's like, because one, it, it probably is reflective later on in the story. I can't really pick up the, the reflections on it. But it's more to show how immature he is compared to everyone else. Yeah, he was like the kind of like oh, I don't I don't want to do that. Like he was yeah. a bit more. He had something funny to say constantly. Yeah. But then that character immediately is killed off mm. because it's not funny. Like he can't you can't get that comic relief from that character because the situation is so serious. Yeah. So, yeah, I did like his character at the beginning, and I thought that he he's, he's a really good actor actually, Tarantino. Mm. Um, well, he did have acting training before. Films, yeah, he's, sure. he was first an actor, wasn't he? Then, then he got into writing and directing? Yeah. I'm well, not sure that's right. I'm not too sure. I think he had, because um, he had a job working at a movie store anyway, or a video store. Oh, cool. So that's why he like, ended up getting into so much film, as well as his dad being like, I need to watch all these cool mm. westerns. But um, I think that really like shaped his ideals to it. And then he, I feel like he became an actor then. It's crazy how much film knowledge he actually has. Mm. Because if you watch, like, like... I've recently watched a documentary talking about his writing and talking about why he would use certain things. And a lot of it is actually to reference and pay homage to older films that you never would have thought of. Yeah. Like, um... There's a scene in Psycho, uh, the old Alfred Hitchcock version. Yeah. And, um... It's the killer, I think, walking past the car and the woman sees him. Yeah. And they, yeah. like, register at each other. That's exactly the same as the Bruce Willis and Lost Ever's Wanted um, scene. 
Ben Fraser's shield. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. I didn't even think of that. He, he is so good at paying homage. He's quite clever. Like, it's not necessarily my sort of thing. Like, when I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. I... Not my kind of thing. Like, the acting was incredible, the cinematography was great, but the problem for me with Quentin Tarantino's structure, and some people love the way he structures films, I am a bit like, I have no idea what, what any of this is leading up to, and it never really amounts to anything. I think it's because Once Upon a Time Hollywood was definitely more of a, um, a passion project for Quentin Tarantino yeah. than anything with the cars and the, the era, and he loves that sort of thing. But it was about Manson family, it was about that, but not really. And it was about Leah being an actor in it, but not really. And Brad Pitt was a, a stuntman, but not really. And it, it it just never really went anywhere. And then suddenly there was a fight and then it ended. And I was like, oh, but it went on for so long. But at the same time, nothing really happened. And it was really odd. And like, I really loved elements of that movie. But as a whole, I walked out being like, oh, a bit too disjointed it was so disjointed but then other people walked out and being like that was incredible like Mm. so i guess it's just difference of opinion but yeah it might also be somewhat people who are more tarantino buffs yeah if if you're a tarantino buff they definitely think you'd love it but even some like people who i know who like tarantino walked out and being like that was very different Mm. but i think it's because it was more of a passion project for i don't think he even cared if people liked it i think he just wanted to do it Fuck it, I'll just get a movie out quick. Which you have to respect the guy for. I think as well, I heard um I heard it was cut down a lot. I heard it was supposed to be like a four hour movie. Yeah, they cut down a lot of the um, Manson family stuff anyway. But the guy who plays um Charles Manson, he played Charles Manson before in a series called Mindhunter. I loved him. Um I haven't seen it but I know he was really good at it. He kind of appeared and then said one line and then he wasn't in it anymore. And then Dakota Fanning was like someone in the family and then they had a scene with her. But it was just so... It was like there's no point in this Manson family thing happening in it. Yeah. Until like obviously at the end with um, the murder of the family and stuff or the mm. attempted murder. It was quite interesting because I know the whole idea of the film was like if these, if Leo and Brad's character existed in real life, maybe um, that killing wouldn't have happened. Mm. In one of the... I forgot um, who Margaret Robbie plays. Um, the fa- she's like a... I haven't seen the film. Oh. Sorry. As, as a Tarantino fan, I'm sorry, but I haven't seen the film. <laughs> Watch it. It's it's basically, based, it's based on a real actress, mm. and she got killed by the Manson family, like, the, in her house, and she was pregnant, uh, okay. and I think her, and no, I think her husband was out, I'm not sure. I might get me getting doing the odds wrong, but basically, she was a famous actress, kind of upcoming actress, and then she was pregnant, she got killed in her home by... Manson and the cult family. of the Manson family. Um, but basically, what happens at the end of this film is that they get it doesn't happen because Brad Pitt and Leo are there and they kind of save her. It's so weird. He basically yeah. just took a real life thing and be like, what will happen if this, if these guys are in it? And it kind of showed their lives and then this random moment at the end. It was just so disjointed. I I, I think, well, I'd say he does that because it kind of flips your expectation of what the plot's yeah, going to be. Yeah, I think that's that what it with, is. Um, he did it with Inglourious Bastards because they actually kill Hitler rather than... Hitler I've never seen Inglourious Bastards, by the way. So like, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry for ruining <laughs> No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. No, I'm okay. But, um, yeah, it's just, as well, I, I found that's really interesting that um, he'll often, like, take the piss with films. Like, yeah. um, in Inglourious Bastards again, there's, like, a British spy and he's supposed to be really suave and like a James Bond, yeah. like, he can do anything. But then, as soon as he starts talking to a German soldier, they're like, your German accent sounds weird. And I really like that he like yeah. put that in just to be like, 
oh yeah, this is how this actual scene would go down. It yeah. wouldn't be like just so easy and so cool for this yeah. guy. Because um, I think it was in reference to another scene with a famous, uh, well, like a British soldier who yeah. was playing a German soldier. But they're both speaking English and perfectly fluent English. And he was like, well... That wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened in real life. Yeah. And it's also reflected later with the actual bar scene when everyone gets gunned down within a second. And it's supposed to be... Well, I like he does this, like... It gives you these big expectations and then shows you the real graphicness of it. Yeah, so it does have that build-up and then suddenly it's like, if you were going to get shot in the head, this is how it would look. And it would yeah. be this quick. It wouldn't have any... Dra- it wouldn't have necessarily any drama to it. There wouldn't be music in the background. There wouldn't be yeah. any... Um, heroic romanticizing side of it it you're just dead and i think tarantino does that really well of being there's a build-up and you it's like a roller coaster you're going up the roller coaster and then instead of having that expectation of falling it's like oh you're straight this is just how it is it's like what you said about the torture scene in reservoir dogs where you were saying that when he gets out of the building yeah i I think the torture scene in reservoir dogs is actually genius it had me on the edge of my seat and obviously the dancing with the with the music and um stuck in the middle with you will never be the same for me <laughs> ever again but like the way he's dancing he's just got this genuine joy yeah of torturing this guy he's like what's this guy doing he's it's almost more unnerving because he's dancing he's not just going straight into it and yeah. he like chops off his ear and then he goes out and the camera follows him and he's like just walking normally towards the car and he leaves and then you can hear the music fainting in the background and you're still following him to his car you're like, what's he doing? Gets the gasoline out, it comes back, and the music starts up again. It's just a really simple but like excellent shot of I don't even know. Like it's just such it just really unnerved me. I think it's because it suddenly got really quiet and you're wondering what the hell he's doing when he gets the gasoline and you know immediately what he's gonna do. And you see him kind of drop this facade of dancing, he's serious, he just wants to torture this guy, and he comes back in and he starts dancing again and yeah. it's like it really shows that he's actually taking pleasure from it. Yeah, he's like, he's like, he's thought about it. It's mm. like he's planned it out. It's just. I think it's it's, so um, it's really reminiscent of what Stanley Kubrick done with uh, Clockwork Orange because. Yeah, you were telling me that I haven't seen Clockwork Orange. I don't think I can handle that film. It's a very dark. Film. Yeah, it's. it's super I'm not dark. sure if I'll. It's great, right but it is it is very dark. And yeah. Very hard to watch at points, but there is um. It's a similar sort of scene, but where they're beating up two people that um, they're about to rob their house and do something horrible to his wife. But um, he's singing "Singing in the Rain" right beforehand. It's a juxtaposition, isn't it, of like yeah. this really happy, innocent song, innocent song in such a horrible, in a manner. horrible setting. Yes, yeah. I think that's what it is. And when that song fades, because it's almost kind of funny when you're watching it with him dancing. You're like, you're like he's dancing. Like, yeah. and he's doing his horrible things so you're, you're also kind of laughing but then when he walks out and the music fades it's, like, it's not funny anymore mm. and, when he, and even when the music comes back in when he comes back through the door he's like it's still not funny <laughs> like, you know yeah. what he's going to do and like it's just it's so clever how you can use like the cheeriest of songs or music and then use it in a setting which is just so awful and brutal mm. that's what I love with a lot of Tarantino stuff like he says he isn't inspired by big westerns but I definitely see like a lot of like big western moments happening in his movies with music especially because they'll have like um the in quotation marks hero character coming into this big western style score and then as soon as something actually graphic happens score cuts completely yeah so it's actually the reality of oh yeah you think this guy's the hero but he's not he's just as bad as everyone else and but he does it with modern music as well it's like these modern like proper like bangers (laughs) oh yeah that's why he done um the super sounds of the seventies in yeah. Reservoir Dogs because one it was to give that 
more light-hearted approach to everything instead of it always be so intense like that's why you put yeah. the music in to like kind of ease you at that point yeah but then it really works in terms of the torture scene yeah. and stuff in Milton Butte because it's just like it is the complete parallel yeah. opposite of what it's doing it's making you even more nervous and it's intense it's so intense and with the some of the 70s thing I always feel like it does make you question the character be like has he done this before does he always put on this radio station when he's going to torture someone mm. is this like routine for him like it's just really interesting I do think Tarantino does have this way with characters more so than structure. Yeah. He, he, he does make you really like characters, like even in Kill Bill, where they're really like over the top. Yeah, you, of course. you get really into the, the characters of kind of genius, especially where they're designed and the way they are. Yeah. And and he gets really good actors for them too, who oh, know exactly how to delve into that character. So I have to commend him for that. I feel like as well, if you're an actor, you've got offered a Tarantino role. Oh, you have to take you it. Have to take it. Like <laughs> you couldn't be like. If I was an actress, uh, fat chance. If I was ever an actress, and I was offered a Tarantino, I immediately would be like, yes. Yeah, straight away. <laughs> I, I'm like, you can treat me like shit. I'd kiss your feet. And yeah. Like, I love you, Tarantino. Just direct me, please. Just please direct me. But hey, I think he's done so much for film, but not even like an original and conventional sense. Yeah. He's done it more to the point where he can have fun with movies. And he creates these incredibly big and deep, just genius plot lines yeah. for me. And as well, I think he's he's a master of world building because, like with Reservoir Dogs again, um, I think the music partly is to reflect the attitudes of the characters. That's why there's still racism. That's why they're still like mm. stuck in like a seventies brain, even yeah. though it was made in the nineties. Like, I think it's to kind of set the era and show where it's at as well. Like they do that with. Um, Inglourious Basterds again when the whole premise is the setup mm. for like half the film and then it gets into the actual film. He's very good at establishing the elements of everything before delivering the story. Yeah. And that's once again like a, a big rule breaker because yeah. you want to get into the story as quick as yeah. possible. Yeah, I think that's probably why I struggle sometimes with him because I feel like what is going on? Yeah. That he's like, no, I need to, it's kind of like I need to get you these appetizers first before we go to your main. Yeah. And like, and sometimes you just want to go straight to the main like I'm a greedy consumer and I want to know what, exactly what's going on oh, the story right now <laughs> banging my knife and fork on the table at please I want the story nom just nom give nom give me the meat and bones <laughs> um, what about you Alice what's your who was your director that really like inspired you I have to say Danny Boyle he's yeah. a big one for me you, you've heard me like rant and rave about him for ages I like Danny Boyle I like Danny Boyle because he's just got a, such a start similar to Tarantino in the sense of you watch a Danny Boyle film, you're like, oh, it's a Danny Boyle film. You know what If it's got you and McGregor in it or James McAvoy, you just know it's a Danny Boyle film. <laughs> someone's Scottish. <laughs> yeah, someone's Scottish. Um, it's just, I just, like, any film of his, I, um, I adore. Um, specifically, 127 Hours, Train Spotting and Trance. I love them ones. Um, I'll probably talk a bit, a bit more about 127 Hours because um, it's just great. And also, I know that Danny Boyle. Um, directed, produced, and wrote that film. Yeah, which is very Which cool. is really interesting. And um, I remember when I saw this film, and I was telling you about it earlier about my mum. I was just sitting in the sitting room with my mum, and she was saying, Oh, Alice, I got tickets for like a film I did on a car. And I was like, Oh, yeah, what, what are we watching? She's like, Oh, 127 hours. And I said, Oh, like, what's it about? She's like, Oh, a guy gets stuck in a rock and he cuts off his arm. I'm like, oh, That sounds shit. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, not the best. That doesn't sound great. Um, I was like, oh, I guess I'll go, and I was really like, 
whatever I was probably like 14 at the time so I was like yeah whatever mum angsty teenager angsty te- oh, you can imagine me being such an angsty teen <laughs> god my rebellious act was probably me staying past 10pm <laughs> that's rebellious man. that's rebellious that's crazy um, yeah continue yeah so we went to the cinema and my mum said this to me the other day actually when I was talking about doing this podcast today she said that she saw me in the cinema and I was literally had my knees to my chest arms right around my knees I was just staring at the screen I was like it did not move like I was so so involved with this film and after I couldn't stop talking about it I I was like crying I think I, I definitely cried talking about it after something about this film really hit me and I think it's because Danny Boyle has this way of engrossing you in the film by using like abstract kind of symbolism and yeah. and ways of doing music and shots um like camera angles and stuff he's a really aesthetically pleasing yes he really is and i think you can definitely get a sense of because obviously i love theater he's definitely got a theater director kind of persona about him because everything's really over the top yeah in the sense of like the camera angles and the music and the filters and how he lines he does a lot of like um split screen stuff in mm. 127 hours it's all about trying to make you feel what Alan Ranson's feeling. And when he's thirsty, he wants you to feel thirsty. Mm. And there's points in the film where I generally was feeling thirsty. Or there's points in the film where I was feeling really claustrophobic. There was points in the film where I was feeling really frustrated about Alan Ranson. Mm. Even though his character's not meant to be the most likeable person, you want him to get out. Yeah. You completely root for him because it's just you. You're just sharing this moment with him. You it's, feel it a lot more. It's basically in the cinema, but you just feel like it's you and Alan Ranson in this situation. And it's so brilliant. And a lot of people left the film saying it was boring because it's just like one person and a few flashbacks. But yeah. I thought the way Dan Boyle did it was genius. There's bits when he was thinking about having a drink and he had all these like flashes of like ad- Coke adverts. And mm. and then it also did this kind of timescape shot of getting out of where he is and going towards his car. And he knows that in the boot of his car, he's got an orange juice in there. Uh, and like, but he speeds through it and he's you just know like, oh, he's just real frustrated for him. Yeah. Like, I think he does that really well in um, Train Spotting as well. Yes. Because it's like the um, the moment where he overdoses on heroin and then he sinks into the ground and then yeah. you see it all from the perspective where he fits, where it's still like he's still in the room. Yeah. But he doesn't know what's going on and he's still like blind. He's like half, you know that the moment. I feel like Dan Ball does this really good thing of like making you feel like you're in between reality and a dream. Yeah. You know that in between stage of sleeping. I feel like all his films reflect that sort of aesthetic. Hmm. And. You were saying something really interesting about train spotting and like color theory earlier. Oh yeah, because um, well, that was the main thing that like popped up to me when I was watching train spotting. Because I was like, like all the shots are really aesthetically pleasing and everything looks great, but the colors always really popped up to me, and I was always like, oh, I wonder what that means. Because yeah. there's obviously that was I could see the symbolism in yeah. something, but I found out. Um, oh, I'd like to say. This is a theory based on me rather than me being like, here's the cold hard truth yeah. about what these mean. It's what you think might, it might mean. Yeah. yeah. I think it's based off Stanley Kubrick's idea of um, colour theory because a lot of the scenes represent it as well. Like every time there's a flash of red, the movie foreshadows what's going to happen in the next scene, which mm. is usually the flash of red is danger. So yeah. something bad's going to happen. Like um, I really liked it when he's walking through the club and he sees the girl for the first time. Mm. And you're like, okay, so she's wearing a red dress. And I was like, there's a lot of flashes of pinks as well. And I was like, okay, so it's going to be a lust, lustful thing yeah. for me at that point. But then the ending shot, when she gets out and she's finally like all in red and there's a red background, you're like, oh, this feels a little bit dodgy now. It, like, yeah. it perfectly symbolises what's going to happen it's in the next It's foreshadowing of colour. Yeah. yeah. And then you find out she's like 
15, isn't she, or something? Yeah, so like, really weird. Oh, god damn, yeah. I can't believe he'd done that. But he does that a lot. Like, um, it's like the scene where the guy finds out that someone's done the sex tape. Yeah, yeah. They're all wearing blue. And blue mm-hmm. means guilt and sin. And it's also reflected when they're in the club talking about, um, they're talking about their wives or their girlfriends at that but point. But they're in a club in the, yeah. on the look. Yeah. <laughs> And then when they both come, they both lie to each other because they were talking about their guys yeah. and they were talking about their girls. And you're like, football, what are you talking about? Shopping. <laughs> I think it, it's done really well to the point, like, it's great because it will give you the idea of what's happening in the film. And then even, yeah. like, little subtly, subtleties, you'll be like, oh, shit, that actually works for that really well. Like, yeah. um, the the scene where they're... It's the very first scene when they're all getting fucked up in the room and... You see the bright red uh, background of the drug den. And then yeah. you see the green corridor where the baby is. And that's actually... Green's apparently the symbol of life and death. That's why you see the baby alive in the corridor. And then you see him dead when they go into the corridor. Like, wow. in the green zone. I didn't even think of that. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, really oh, Danny Boyle, cheers. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, he d- he's... he's so good at s- symbolism in his films. Yeah. Really, really good. And sometimes it's really loud and very obvious symbolism. And sometimes it's really subtle. Mm. Like, there's loads of like loud symbolism in 127 hours because it's a hard film to kind of make interesting for two hours because it's just a guy stuck in a rock. In a rock. Yeah. He's so good at this build up of like this pressure building. He uses sound effects so well. Mm. Um, there's thing, definitely things in Train Spotting where he uses sound effects really well to build up this kind of weird pressure. Oh, yeah. And in 127 hours, they do it when he's like, his heart is beating and he's like, I need to get, I need to get out, I need to get out. And then he kind of. Finally, has the idea to chop off his arm. Finally, does it and he just stabs it and he realizes there's a bone there and he can't do yeah, anything, yeah. so he leaves it. But that builds up with like, I need to do it. And when he eventually does like cut through his arm, when he gets to the the, um, the nerves, he uses like a radio sound. Like, every time he touches the nerve, it's like a yeah. that off radio sound when it kind of you know like when a microphone has feedback and it's really horrible. Like yeah. it's that sort of and you feel it. Like, I remember like in terms of feeling my arm like cringe, up cringe. And, yeah. He's just so good at having this kind of build up with, with things like sound, visuals. Mm. Um, an interesting fact actually about 127 hours is the fact that, obviously, Aaron Ralston when he was in that the real guy, yeah. when he was in that situation, he did did do video tapes, but um, there's one on YouTube you can watch. Ooh, I never knew that. Yeah, he spoke because he thought he was going to die, so he left a tape saying, "I love you, mum." Like that's crazy. Um, but he did loads, but he's only ever shown his mum, and his and. When they did the film, he showed Danny Boyle and Aaron Alston. I was going to say, I would have been very surprised if he was like, I can't show you anything. No, no, he showed it to them. And he said it's like really the the hardest thing to watch because he's like dying. Like he's like gaunt. And I think, I do think it's a section where uh, in the film when James Franco is saying, um, it's got all these split screens, it's all this stuff going on, all those imagery, and like fast forward of him like falling into this position and then rewinding and. And he's saying, all my life, this rock has been waiting for me. Mm. Like, all my life amounts to nothing because this rock has been waiting for me. I'm going to die here. Like, yeah. And I do think, I have a feeling that was what Aaron was saying in his... What is actually Yeah, because like. we would never know. He would never show anyone. But, like, and obviously Danny Boyle and um, James Franco, I don't think they'll ever tell anyone. Well, what, yeah. But I do think it's that because he must have just gone crazy. Oh, yeah, of course. Like, all the, you know the thing when he... um. It was filling up with water. Mm. That was like a true hallucination he had. Like 
James, he had a hallucination that he was in the cupboard and he was trapped in the cupboard at one point. Mm. Um, it's insane. And I can imagine in that moment you were thinking about all these, like, even though aesthetically pleasing, like, aesthetic is something that Bamboo goes for, he also, also goes for, like, slight relationships or what ifs in characters. Yeah. Like, with Transporting, you always think, what if they just never got into this, like, into drugs in the first place? What would they yeah. last be? And I think, I think, it, um, the what if for Aaron Ralston in 127 hours is what if I've been leading my life wrong? Because yeah. you're faced with that thing of have I, le- have I lived right? I'm going to die, am I regretting anything? And then you'll see things about the girl mm. in his past. And I'm not sure if, she, that, if that's based on anyone in real life. It might be. But, it might be. It might be a dramatic thing. But like, or it might be just something that's easier to grasp yeah, make for it, an audience. Make it more like, relatable to that degree. But yeah, it's just insane. And like any movie I watch at Danville, I will be in tears because I just, I think it's like an over, you, you kind of get a sense overload because there's so much like sound design, mm-hmm. visual designs, different camera angles that are uncomfortable, uncomfortable imagery, obviously in Transporting with the dead baby. Yeah. Like, or he will do like a really nice film like yesterday and you will probably still be crying. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a super varied yeah, character. I, really I, do, I do think it's a theatre guy in him. Like, mm. he will have, take any story. He's attracted to stories, I think, and people, and then he will make it his own and make it his style. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. I think that's why I really like him. But I could probably talk about him for hours, so we'll stop now. <laughs> no, but. I was going to say, I, re- I, I really like that he also has the balls to do these sort of things. Like, cause, because filming or making a film with one person yeah. in a set location for the whole time. It's yeah. so James difficult. Franco has um, claustrophobia as well. He said he really struggled. Oh, shit. That's really cool, though. He really struggled. I'm guessing that really added to the part, though, because they yeah. are just, like, in an actual in an actual terrifying situation rather than it be, like, I'm acting yeah. about a terrifying situation. They're actually yeah. stuck there, and you're like, oh, God. He also God. used his real video camera as well. That's in really the scenes, cool. there was the actual Aaron's video camera. And yeah. Like, he does that a lot as well. He, like, he will introduce, like multimedia into things like he'll be like oh we need a handheld camera here or we need like yeah different shots of different styles he's a proper media guy yeah. i feel like it's all like reliant on um on things like video and lighting and mm. it, very much that as we said before like a stage like he's really what well, was probably why his frankenstein on stage went turned out really well because he directed oh. that of um benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, okay. And um, cool. he directed Frankenstein, and us. it was um, it was um, on National Theatre Live for a bit for uh, people due to I COVID. Yeah. Um, stunning. Like I don't know how. There's bits where the grass is growing from the stage, and rain is coming. Out. It's just like what through projection or I don't know. Like I don't watch it. It looks <laughs> real. I don't know. Like it's just beautiful, and he has like the sun coming up and, all, and mm. birds and. But then there's horrible, gruesome bits in it too. Like, he's just so good. Yeah, <laughs> like, he knows how to create a he, setting. Yeah, and, and really that's so sharp. evident in film. Yeah. Like, that, that is definitely, he's definitely got a theatre kind of head when he puts it mm. in his film with things like, oh, I'm going to use all this extra media in something where you could really use something really subtle, mm. but he doesn't. Like, I think, though, that, that's like, um, I feel like I describe him then as a director's director. Like, mm. he's a director use all these things intentionally for people to notice yeah but a lot of the time it's like a kubrick thing where you may not appreciate the film or like the story like but once you actually look at all the elements and how he actually put it together and how he actually created a scene you go you, you can't help but appreciate mm. it because you go 
I would never have thought to do anything like that. Like it, he he can open up a world, and I yeah. think Danny Boyle does that as well. Like he can, because I liked as well. Um, in Train Spotting, it feels very much like a nineties rave music video. Yeah, like, there's a lot of moments even the music the music that's been picked for it is like a nineties music video. Yeah, totally. I he definitely his aesthetic for that was like I want grungy nineties in Scotland. Yeah, like. Yeah. And that was the aesthetic. They obviously had mood boards for all of that, and the, oh. and I think he was very inspired by music for that one, mm. most definitely. Even the filter in it, it's got a slight green filter, and yeah. it's so crunchy and nice. That's the more dingy look of Britain, even though it's already dingy. Yeah, <laughs> even though it's already like really cloudy a yeah. bit. <laughs> but I really appreciate that. I think as well, after watching a couple of his movies, you can definitely see his own stylization to it as well like he, mm. he very much makes a movie his own and he'll do it with varied genres and stuff so i think he's probably one of the more interesting directors that don't really get big recommendations or don't really get seen as much as compared to some of them yeah because i think a lot of thing is like you watch a film and you're like, oh it's Danny Boyle mm. um because it's so different from the last film mm. like a lot of his early stuff is very like within the same genre of like shadow grave is a good example it's very very like dingy that's a bit more less stylized and there's a bit more questioning about humanity a bit more there's yeah. a bit more about characters in that one but it's still got the same it's still got Ewan McGregor in it again <laughs> and Christopher Eccleston in it isn't it B um, but it's got the same kind of feel but as he kind of went on he started doing like like Little Miss Sunshine I think oh, um, yeah. I and he started to broaden his scope a bit more yeah and Oh, I love him. <laughs> I love him. I just love him. I, I, do want, want, I want to marry him. The next film he has to make has to be a fear and loathing movie with David Tennant as one of the main roles. Yeah, I can imagine he would do. He has to be Scottish. Exactly. That's like the, one of the most Use Scottish Use your mother tongue. Can have. <laughs> so you just got to play Hunter S. Thompson, the Scottish this time. Do it Scottish. <laughs> um, is there anyone else who comes to mind for your favourite director? Recently I've been really getting into like Jordan Peele. Mm. Yeah, I, I thought, watched Get Out last night and it's incredible. It's, it's, again, aesthetically, he's really interesting. It's very different from Dan Boyle. It's not as loud and obvious, but mm. he's so good. And he's one of those directors where if you think about the reasons why he does it, it's actually kind of like a light-hearted reason why he starts things, but then it becomes this deep thing. Mm. And he does, in Get Out, he does very much question about systematic racism and yeah. and... Casual racism. Casual racism, well. but also adds a bit of humour into it. Like, Get Out, it's called Get Out because Jordan Peele said, well, that's what black people say in the cinema in a horror movie. They're like, Get Out! Yeah. <laughs> you um, said it was based off um, an Eddie Murphy sketch. Yeah, well, right? so how Get Out started was it was based off an Eddie Murphy sketch where he was saying how white people in horror films for some reason stay. Mm. Like, and he's like, Why don't you like, get out? <laughs> like, just get, like, why are you still here? And he, he's. And so he really was inspired by that kind of notion of like, mm. that's really interesting. But then it became a much more deeper. He decided to do like a horror film with his own personal fears of something that really definitely could happen. Yeah, something that's even still pro uh, prominent in yeah. like, America a lot of times. And it's uncomfortable. And and you feel like you have to be careful when you talk about it. But I, don't, I think Jordan Peele wants people to talk about this. And mm. I love how honest he is about how he casts his films. He's very much like, I want my main characters to be black. And then yeah. when people question it, it's like, well, we've lived in Hollywood where white people have been cast as main characters all the time. Like, yeah, exactly. I really, respect, I really respect him as a director. And I think 
he's so honest about how things start he wasn't like oh get out was like this kind of feeling i had when i was like because obviously he didn't experience racism like but it kind of started off with this very whimsical idea and it became something a lot deeper mm. it kind of, kind of became something that was like a true fear and i think that's why he, he mixes horror and comedy really well yeah he makes these characters that, which do have one-liners which are really funny and have personalities you really kind of like like the best friend in Oh, yeah, Rod Williams. Yeah, he's great. He, he's funny, and you like him. You really like him, and, I, you, and you kind of hope for him to get. You better not die because yeah. I like him. Like, well, I was gonna say, I think he is that reflection of Eddie Murphy being like, get out, because he's yeah, literally he, like, he is like the these person. Guys, these guys sound like they're fucking warping people's minds and making them sex like <laughs> shit. Get the fuck get out! out. Of there. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. I love. To be fair, I, for me, it was partly like a lot of the acting was incredible a lot of it you like really felt the moments it's what well, it was one of those films when i watched it and I, was, I was amazed by the acting but especially um daniel kaluuya absolutely incredible <laughs> and apparently in his audition actually he auditioned like five times and then they were just sold on him because he had to do like an emotional scene <laughs> and he did it perfect every time that the way the way he cried it would cry at the same point every time you read it on the same cheek Jesus. he's just one of those actors that's just so cro- he's excellent at his craft mm. so and I think Geordie Croft kind of had him in mind anyway he originally wanted Eddie Murphy but he thought he might have been a bit too old for the role that would have been very strange it would have been different but I think Eddie Murphy's actually a really good actor he just doesn't really tend to be in those films like the only film yeah. I can think of where he was like a really like pro- like a serious character who was funny but it was also kind of horrible in it was on Dreamgirls I really liked that they um a lot of it's like really intense focus shots on the yeah. character's face. I think he really wanted to show and display how good of actors all of them were playing. Yeah. Because his bit as well, the um, bit where Chris is talking about his mother dying and he's yeah. like being brought back to his past and then there's just suddenly like a still face but you just see the tears drop down yeah. his face and he's like, why am I crying? What's going on? And he yeah. captures it so perfectly. Is that when he's talking to the mum? Yeah, yeah, she's hypnotising the first yeah. time. She's like, yeah, you need a focal him. point. And yeah. you're like, she's already doing it, Chris. She's already doing she's it. Doing it. Chris, get out! Exactly. Get out! <laughs> I want to be that guy. He's like, get out! Get out. <laughs> shaking him but like, yeah, he's like, he's feeling these emotions, but he, it's insane like, how he can show he's not purposely feeling these emotions, but he can't help it. But and mm. and when he goes into the sunken place, yeah, that's so emotional watching that. Like he just that panic. Mm. It's kind. Of, I kind of the only thing I can think about how it's related to is. If you did had a really bad high or something, like I've mm. never been high, I don't know, but like, and you're stuck in that high and you, you have to just wait until it's over, he has to just wait. He was just, and when he got out, he had no concept of what how long he was there. Mm. How terrifying! I was gonna say it actually did really remind me of the way uh, Danny Boyle shot the OD scene yes. in Train Spotting because yeah. it's completely out of this world. It feels yeah. like you can get the already the representation that is disjointed from reality and i liked as well that it like appears as a tiny little screen right off in the distance yeah he can't he can't get there and he's like facing backwards and mm. his face is frozen well as well he's just stuck in this horrible emotion and and it's reflected in the last section where he's getting hypnotized and he's yeah. tied up to the chair and then suddenly the screen turns on yeah like so i think uh, he just done it so well and i love his um he has a beautiful thing with shots anyway because I thought the movie was shot gorgeously. Like, yeah. It looks incredible. Cinematography is brilliant mm. in that. But um, some of the, sh- like his his symmetry in shots looks incredible. Like he knows exactly where to position a person and it feels like, I don't know, it just adds such a cool aesthetic 
but you don't really get to see much yeah. nowadays because nowadays it'll be more like um shooting off at the side like you get a whole widespread um action shot rather than it be like so focused on the yeah. characters or something like that but i also found it interesting i'm sorry i'm also talking a lot about kubrick but i think no kubrick, it's fine to like yeah yeah well i think kubrick inspired so much in cinema as well and in this film some elements are definitely picked up with that because um it's like the scenes where you see someone holding a camera and it looks like it's someone moving with the camera yeah. that's actually intentional because it's meant to represent your journey with the characters mm. throughout it and there's a really good example of that where um it's uh daniel fighting the um crazy racist brother yes yeah yeah and uh it looks like at one point the cameraman steps out of the corner like he's yeah. hiding behind the door and yeah. then back away and it, it's, it makes you feel like you're there. Yeah. yeah, it's that representation that it, it adds more of a more of a journey to it and you actually yeah. feel like you're there. And I think it's really good to do those sort of things because nowadays, like, you could probably pick up on subtle bits, but movies are very sh- are shot to be movies. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't feel like they're journeys anymore. You don't feel like you're in the room with the characters. Yeah. Like, The Avengers, it's, it's a great journey. Yeah. But it's a movie. You don't actually feel the like The whole you're point is that you're a secondary person that's watching it from... You're separated from it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think that's why Jordan Peele's really changed in the face of horror. Mm. Because he's making these really insane concepts that a lot of people have done before, but he's doing it in a way that's so... From a very personal place, but also very in an aesthetically pleasing place. Mm. He, he gets, somehow gets you so wrapped up into into the journey of the character. Yeah. That, and that's what that's what horror is meant to do. You're meant to be there because you're meant to be scared as if you're there. And even like the beginning of it when they hit the deer, mm. this kind of feeling that he gets, it already it's so tense. The music at the yeah. beginning, oh my God, the intro music, isn't it terrifying? Oh, yeah. incredible. You have Rum Rabbit Rum. For me, that immediately brought back the idea of World War Two and the Nazis. And I thought that was going to be reflected in the white characters. And yeah. Because like, they do it often. They'll be like, talking about genetic makeup and then they'll be saying like really awkward casual racist stuff but then it's also an idea of their mentality to then flipping into redbone where it shows daniel in his apartment as a modern person yeah and he actually still has the has the notions of like living in modern day yeah i think that's really well reflected with um because he says it a lot as well he's like this guy's acting like we're back in the 50s yeah he's very modern he's very outspoken mm. character as well he's really like this isn't right mm. i wonder if that is to kind of poke fun at that idea that there are people still so set back within their mentality i definitely think so like I definitely i i feel like jordan peele as a director would be the kind of person not afraid to say the people who are like this mm. you are actually ridiculous like mm. it's a really good social commentary because it's like, really good really gives you one it gives you like a really good establishing moment for the main character like mm. you get the main character's journey and when he breaks down yeah. about his mum to his girlfriend for the first time and yeah it's, it's horrible really really heartbreaking mm. but also i think the way he's done the dialogue is really smart it reminds me of something quite tarantino like because um if you watch from the beginning bit like think about the deer situation mm. there's then the scene afterwards where the dad's talking about deers being rats of yeah. the world and being like oh we need to get rid of them all and it's a very subtle rip into into him yeah and also like um like he is almost like chris as a character is relating to this deer mm. he's seen this deer as like this was a thing that had a heartbeat and mm. something that was alive and killed it and he he was really sad about it 
and then for just someone just to completely brush that off and say well they're pests like you have got to kill them mm. like it's almost like if you're attacking that dude you're attacking me like am yeah. i a pest like it's such the way like it's written like the, everything that's said in it is just has a purpose and it just yeah. works so well it's like um when the brother asks him about uh has he got any fighting training is to see whether he could actually take him yeah. as opposed to asking him about his fighting training yeah. he's like oh dude i not as much i like yeah. doing it at ufc and it's kind of to display that he's already thinking how can i beat this guy yeah. to that to that degree. and it shows like the whole idea that they they're talking like about these people as if they are it's, it's very auctiony isn't it and mm. they talk about them like their build and the, how fast they are the health the teeth like it, things like that are mm. coming up it's almost as if as if like they're auctioning off an animal mm. and but really, it shows in Chris's character he's the, the least animalistic one there. Mm. He's not preying on these people for a selfish gain. He's actually the most polite. He's the one that's when they were asking about his fighting skills and the brothers being really good and really polite. And he's like, yeah, he's trying to brush it off. He's brushing off. He's laughing and he's mm. really trying and he's trying to meet people halfway. And you saying that he's not a killer? I think that is reflected in the last moments as well because yeah. he kills the whole family and then when he gets to his girlfriend, he's literally about to strangle her, but he goes no I don't want to be like this like I don't yeah. want these people to turn me into a monster yeah to that degree. Like, exactly you know what though I did think the end I thought it was going to end even more dark because I thought with the um, police turning up yeah I thought it was going to be the white racist cop yeah who pinned I, I thought it was going to do that too I wonder if that was like on the cards I do think it was because I think as well because I think you were meant to think that I think you were meant yeah. to think shit but then it turns out to be the friend you're like oh thank fuck yeah. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I, I, I think that is like a thing of being like you don't want to do that ending because then it's all for nothing to that yeah. degree you go whilst it also kind of reflects like um modern tendencies and modern ideas of all police brutality and stuff mm. i think it would be a bit of a cop-out because yeah. you're like fuck man chris has just gone through all this shit yeah and now he's still got to do it's this. enough to know that uh, and the fact that people even are, even now denying that is a thing, but it's enough to know that this crossed our mind yeah. when we're watching. Like, oh shit, this white cop is going to have to be arresting. Yeah. We 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 thought that because we it's so known, especially in America, that if there were white guys standing there explaining themselves, they probably would not necessarily give the benefit of the doubt, but they would question him and be a bit more fair. But straight away, if, it, if it, these bodies are around and the black guy was there, if the white cop racist cop turned up, it would have gone completely different. And yeah. We d- that fear we already knew, but it turned out to be the friend, and we laughed. Mm. That that relief we got. I like as well that it isn't still a happy ending because yeah. even though he's safe, you see Chris's face at the end, and he isn't happy. He isn't like he oh, lost man, the, he lost life. the love of his life. Yeah, I think that because is. Because she lied to him. Like, oh yeah, she, well, she, she was mm-hmm. such a good actor, Alice Alison Williams. Alison Williams, yeah. Incredible. The complete. It cost her so well because she had her look is the the innocent hair tied up in a pretty p- ponytail. Really mm. innocent, very very intelligent, Obama girl probably like, and mm. and her just not being that at all, and I'm not necessarily shocked, but she acted it so well. Yeah. She was like, I'm actually shivering thinking about it. She was nasty, but like, the the bit you were telling me earlier, and I, rem- I remember thinking about this the other day. Oh, the emotionless. The emotionless bit when she's on the phone, and she's calling the police, right? Police. Uh, she's calling Rod at that point. Yeah, she's calling Rod, saying I don't know what's happened to him. She's sounding really what her voice generally sound worried but her face is blank so and i don't even know how anyone could even put worry in their voice and look blank that's such a skill mm-hmm. i would always have to crinkle my eyebrow or yeah i'd, I'd get I, I naturally the, the physical thing of it yeah because yeah, it helps push the emotion that, oh 
it terrified me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing with Jordan Peele that he's really good. He's really good at silence and blank stares. And yeah. he's really good at taking something that's a moment, like in someone's eyes when it's just blank and he's going to look at the camera or look at that character. And and it it makes you more freaked out. Mm-hmm. Like the bit when um, Chris is on the phone and then everyone stops the party and just looks at him. Yeah. I, mean, it, I don't think he really... stops and turns to Yeah, but the, he doesn't know this. He hasn't yeah. seen it. But you just know they're just they're waiting for him. And mm. that... Oh, <laughs> it, it terrifies me. It's, oh, Jordan Peele's a genius. I think that's what a lot of horror films miss as well. Like, because um, there's a lot of tension and suspense in mm. Get Out. And I think you need that in a horror film. It's like when he's um, about to leave the house for the first time. He's like, Rose, where are your fucking keys? Mm. And she's like searching his bag and the family are slowly starting to circle mm. in and it's starting to get more and more. And you're get up, get up, get up. Literally, yeah. you're thinking, like, get up, get up, get up. fucking <laughs> keys. And you're like, oh. No, and that was the bad. bit where I was like, I know for a fact, like we knew like, it was hinting at the fact that, oh, is she evil? Is she on this side? Mm. But as soon as we got to get me the keys and she was taking her time, I was like, oh, she's not. She's a bitch. She's a bitch. <laughs> she's a bitch. Um, one thing that really annoyed me in that film though, and it's not even the film itself. The film itself is great. But I think the trailers gave away too much of it. I think so as well. Because I've th- got the plot already from the trailer. Yeah. And just watching it. I get they couldn't really do anything without showing what it's about because otherwise you just show random scenes of cuts between yeah. what it's like. But, and it would still give you an idea anyway. But I'd wished I hadn't seen the trailer for that so I'd be more surprised when I was getting into yeah, it. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I think... Even if they just had the run rabbit run music in the trailer and the car, yeah, and then arriving in the house and just sensing something's off, or him like in the chair crying whilst he's talking about his mother dying yeah. and stuff, like something like that where it's intense. So it's out of context, and it's yeah, that would I do agree. I didn't see the trailer before I saw the film, uh, which okay. I'm really happy about because I knew that the idea was a it has sort of a racist undertone. Someone told me, mm. <laughs> and I was like, undertone is an understatement. <laughs> it's racist. Yeah. Like, the characters are racist. It's just. He's just so good, and if if you can get the chance, please watch Us as well. Mm. Um, that is really, and it has the same kind of idea of like the sense of humor, and it's similar. Like the dad in it, he's funny in it, but but this it kind of it deals with doppelgangers. Mm. Um, that's all I'm gonna say because I don't want to give away too much. But, <laughs> yeah, it might, it might. But it, it's funny, but it's also scary, and the acting is incredible again. Like um, Letitia, she's incredible actress she's such a good actress anyway but she's so good in this like mm. she's got a vulnerability and also a strength in her that's really interesting to see in a horror film because mm. usually they kind of gloss over some that elements of human humanity and horrors yeah it's usually very stereotyped like oh she's the especially high school horror like oh, when it's yeah. like you got the jock and you got the virgin and yeah. you got the cheerleader the druggy it, it yeah. doesn't yeah. do that at all at all it's just a, an old family and some shit happens and that's it's just really cool i was glad that with um get out because it didn't rely on tropes or anything no it didn't at all Not the only trope is like the twist of the girl at the end but that but yeah. that fitted the story and it was fun yeah and you could always kind of see it going that way like i'd, I'd notice it when she'd be like nervous to say something but i'd always think but that's well, sometimes a little side glance she has at him like it's yeah. just a bit like that was odd and i don't know why yeah because at the beginning she stuck up for him with that with that cop so that was meant to like calm your nerves about her i think that's the point of it mm. you think oh she's like on his side but then as it goes on like something's weird about her she's too perfect yeah and as well i like that um the whole time she's like she's making chris out to be crazy 
but not actually supporting him. It's not like um, yeah. she's like, oh yeah, we'll do that straight away. We don't have like if my family are being racist, we will get out of here yeah. straight away. It's more like, oh, you're acting crazy. Yeah, no, she, no, she completely like gaslights him. Yeah. She gaslights him the whole time, and he's like, "Am I crazy? I don't understand." Yeah. Mm. And at first, so at comments they said she she actually was upfront and said, "I can't believe they said that to you." Like she would say that, but then she would also make you feel crazy that you wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's really interesting. She's master manipulator. Oh yeah. Um, Went for acting for it. And it makes it more heartbreaking, yeah, because they have that moment when they're looking at each other and saying, "I love you. You're my world," and it's not. Real, <laughs> yeah. like Chris, you deserve someone great. Oh yeah, but I was also like Chris, don't fall for that. Don't don't don't, 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 don't listen to her being like I love you as she's like get sh- gosh gut short. Oh no! Oh my god! Oh. oh anyway, so um, I did want to ask: Is there any director you think, well, at the moment? Because I think we're getting to an era of like directing becoming unique again and people going more for styles rather than trying to create franchises to a degree yeah um is there a director you'd go oh yeah he's he's gonna be the next tarantino or next oh i don't know there's definitely a surge in female directors at the moment which is Mm. great Mm. um i'm not sure i think it's because we're still like coming to the end of these franchises a bit and obviously right now we don't know what's going with covid like a lot of films have been pushed back that's true um the cinemas are not doing very well so sadly Mm. so i don't really know but i i'm excited i think after covid i think something good's gonna happen Mm. i think someone's gonna create something i know like kevin smith wants to come back and he wants to do clerks three yeah he's doing a lot of uh, reboots and like redoing some bits of his franchise because it's like he, he, he wants to get back into movie making. He wants I'm to get so back glad. into movie making because he's, he's gotten very into like his comics and his like podcasts and, and mm. talk shows talk, talk, sort of stuff. Yeah. I'd love for him to get back into movie making. Especially because like, the reason why he wants to do Clerks 3 is very much like, it's been a shit year. Let's just have some fun while yeah. we can. I love that. Great. And we have to do an episode talking about Kevin Smith, actually. Cause yeah, we definitely do. I too. really like Kevin Smith as a director. He's just got such a whimsical way about him. Yeah. Whilst doing something really like complex, like religion, may I add, with dogma. Yeah, dogma's yeah, Dog- yeah. dogma's very good at that. I love, love dogma. Movie. I thought dogma's genius. It's so good. But, and um, Alan Rickman. And Alan Rickman as the voice of God, which is incredible, yes. incredible. Um, but yeah, I'm not really sure. I think because of this COVID thing, I think I was getting an idea of some people that were going to really kind of build up and they're really mm. introducing new direct female directors and um directors from the black community and I thought that was really great and I just thought oh this is a change we all need and then Covid happened and we're like oh so I, see you I hope this doesn't erase all that work and see you in one year yeah, yeah oh. I can get that um, what about you? for me uh, it's a bit of a controversial choice for the beginning but I'd say Ryan Johnson because even though he shat on Star Wars The Last Jedi he made Knives Out and Knives Out <gasps> is incredible I didn't know he did Knives so Out good. yeah yeah, it's so oh, weird. Oh, Knives Out was great. It's so weird. It's such a weird comparison when you go Maybe to that's Star because, Wars. like, Knives he out. did Knives, um, he did Star Wars, and that's a franchise that already has a star, but I think Knives Out's more his style, maybe. Yeah. Because well, Knives I Out had this, had a sort of, sort of like a Baz Luhrmann vibe. Mm, in, a, in a way, from the campness of it, and 
very bright, very big. But Nice Out is very great. Mm. That's a, I think that will be our recommendations then, wouldn't it? So everything we said, Knives Out, and Knives Out, and I wanted to say um, Takahiti as well because I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit, but I really want to see it. And Paul Ragnarok was incredible. My my face when you said Jojo Rabbit, I, Jojo Rabbit's amazing. <laughs> and it's literally lit up at that I, point. Jojo, mm, once you watch Jojo Rabbit, we need to talk about Jojo Rabbit because it's so good. We'll do um, a war themed episode at some point. Yes, I think that'd be really good. Because there's a lot of war films I need to watch as well. Yeah, there's so many. I think my dad's got loads. loads. Yeah. Well, for, for all these films, he's, he's given me loads of lists of stuff, and I was like, Dad, I can't do it all. <laughs> That's why I'm separating yes. different episodes. That's what I like about it. All right, so should we wrap this up? Yeah, I'm good. Awesome. So um, we should probably mention our Instagram. Yes. Um, which is um, good.bad.average. Yes. Sorry about all the dots. All the names I've taken. We've <laughs> <laughs> um, work with what we can. So um, we haven't got loads of posts on there yet, but we're, we're working on a few things. And obviously we update our stories. A lot of dots of cool, like film questions. And we, we would love to hear from people and like what, and even give us suggestions. We would love to do, watch films that are suggested to us and review them. That would be really yeah, cool. Yeah, we should do like a fan day at some point. Like a... Like, a, oh, we'll rec- if you recommend us a couple of films, yeah. we'll watch them and then have and a discussion about And then we'll about discuss them. about them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Do that. Follow <laughs> us on Instagram and do, do that. that. <laughs> do that. And also, don't forget to rate and review and subscribe if you can, because yeah. it means everything to us and it will yeah. push us up. Yeah, yeah. We want to carry on doing this. And, like, this doesn't pay the rent. We're doing this, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing this for the love of it. So exactly. it'll be nice if people would like enjoy it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, if you're listening on Apple, please rate and view. If you're on Spotify, please um, subscribe to our channel. And that's it. That's it, really. Um, have a great day. Okay, All right. Bye.